Now, as we experience the movement of the Holy Spirit, what happens when the Holy Spirit moves? He brings his comfort. He brings his presence into us. But he also brings us change. And he challenges us in areas of our lives that we need to move. And so when we feel the presence of the Lord through our worship and through our life, we know that the Lord wants to move us forward in a position that we can totally be free from some of the pain that we've been covering, holding. Now we're in a series called uh, Road to Restoration, and I've been doing this for 12 weeks, and, and the music, I'm not, I, I'm not privy to know what the music is. I hear it for the first time. And I go, man, it's just right on the theme today. Because as we're doing this series, a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you about King David, how King David was nuts and messed up and had emotional issues that are beyond you and I. But yet he was a man after God's own heart. And when he was young, we had this great victory in his life when he conquered his Goliath. But we know that he had a, something that was just terribly when he had an affair with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up, sending Aaron, his, her husband, to sleep with her. But he didn't, and so he had her killed. The shame and the guilt that David had to live with was probably enormous. But if you look at the Psalms reading today, it was so powerful that when David wrote this. He said, the fear of the Lord is a first step to wisdom. And so I look at this, and I'm so amazed that David, because as we continue in this passage, that David passes away, he dies. And therefore, he died living a victorious life. He was not identified with his brokenness or identified of his affair, but yet he was identified by God. This is the man that loves me. And so anyway, it was interesting that he chose out of all his children to be the following king of the nation was a son named Solomon. And what's interesting with Solomon, that what he did, Solomon was Bathsheba's son. The one that he was embarrassed of, the one he didn't want to deal with, became the king. And so when we read scripture, the Solomon, that, that he learned a lot from his father, but in a dream, he had this, and as I put it on the screen, as Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, what should I give you? Can you imagine if God in a dream said, just ask, and it will be given to you? Two Tesla Model X's. <laughs> or the 405 freeway opening up every time I go to work. Or long life, or riches. You know, we would ask all of a sudden, we would immediately ask for some. But this boy, what he does, he asks for wisdom. Now, you would think it would be wise to be asking for wisdom. And I think because his dad mentored him so well, because his dad wrote, basically, the fear of the Lord is a first step to wisdom here. And so this is his prayer. When he's leading a great nation now, that all of a sudden this nation that he was going to lead was very divisive among each other. There was a lot of fighting among this nation. And so this was his request, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. Give your servant, this is Solomon, where his perception of himself is a servant. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Able to discern from good and evil. For who can govern your great people? See, he, 
what he did, he didn't ask for knowledge. He asked for wisdom. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people that are very highly educated, that have a lot of stuff in their head, but there's no common sense and there ain't no wisdom. Right? And you're going, my goodness, how are you so educated, but yet do the dumbest things? And so with, uh, wisdom is really what it is. It's a skill that you take the knowledge that the Lord has given you and you apply it to your own life and you live it. This is why he said, I'm a servant to governing your people. And this is where I believe David did a great job mentoring his son. And so God was ecstatic, was pleased with him. And so this is what God said. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 11. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life, that's what I would do, riches, yep, I got me in there, and the life of your enemies, yes, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you wise and discerning minds. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall rise after you. Oh, my goodness. This guy knew exactly what to do and what to ask for before he led the people. Now, you may say, how does this apply to me? Because I'm not going to govern a nation. I'm not leading a state. I'm not doing this. But you have to understand, he's using it to govern people, to work with people, to get people to work with him. It's all about relationships. And so when we sing the song, Peace on Earth, let it begin with me. This is how it begins in relationships. This is how it does. We're not talking about starting with a nation. We're start, st talking about starting within a family, within a marriage, within a community, within a church. And so sometimes we have to realize that you and I have some incredible harmful patterns that we've lived with. We have character flaws, addiction, harmful behaviors that we need to work through. Last week I talked about making amends and how to have your heart open to make amends with somebody. So this is part two of this message because the reason I'm getting on this is because I put it on the screen, the road to restoration comes to a dead end here. If we aren't willing to restore a relationship that we have damaged, peace. It's one thing when I go home, I want peace. But you have to work on that, don't you? It doesn't come natural peace in our lives. And so this is where I'm discovering there's three direct wisdoms that God has given um, Solomon here that we can apply to our own life for him when it comes to governing the nation, for me when it comes to governing my marriage, my relationships, my friendships, the people in the church and stuff like this. The first one I've discovered is this. Wisdom is to make direct amends. You've been hurt? You've hurt somebody, I can guarantee it. We've all hurt someone. We've all said some stupid things. Things that we meant at that moment, but we don't know how to make amends. And the reason why direct amends is important, I don't know if you've ever had someone try to make amends through an emoji. I'm serious. Hand, praying hands, smiling, sorry, whatever. And I'm going, dang, dude, let's do it directly. I don't want to talk through emojis. And 20 years ago, I wouldn't be saying the word emojis anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> I 
But through text messages and through emails, no, you don't make amends that way. You make it directly. Because I can guarantee you that sometimes I received a text message and I go, and I was offended. And it wasn't meant by that. Or I said some joke and they don't know if it's a joke because they don't see 80, they don't see your body language, they don't hear your tone of voice, they don't see anything. And so now you're ticked off. And guess what you do when things are written? You show other people that don't like that person as well. See what bonehead idiot wrote to me? Do you see what I mean? I promise you, none of you have an email from me of amends. I don't put it in emails. If I'm mad or angry or hurt, it's never in writing because I know it goes all around. So you've got to be very careful. That's why making amends directly is important because you don't want that other person to have to read between the lines and try to figure out your motives. And so step nine of the 12 steps, and this is what this whole series is uh, following, is the 12-step program. Step nine says this. We make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. That is wise in itself. Even if I'm having problems with my wife, I'm not going to try to make amends through a text message when she's at work. It needs to be direct. And when we have problems with somebody within the church or somebody at work, we, we, to make amends needs to be direct. I think I'm making that clear, aren't I? Direct, direct amends requires us to be specific what we said and saying, I'm sorry, I said this and this. I meant it at that time, but I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? As we learned last week. Speaking in generalities or codes is not going to get it because you get that confused look. What are you talking about? Are you apologizing or are you ready to rip me one? I, I don't get where you're going on this. Getting specific about this when it comes to peace. Now back on the screen. The only way to make direct amends, direct amends is to speak about specific times and ways that you know you've harmed that person. Have you ever tried to say I'm sorry but you use the word but? If you, if you didn't get me so mad, I wouldn't have said it. Do you ever receive that apology wholeheartedly and go, thank you? This is my fault, but yeah, thank you. It is so hard to apologize for something you said, especially if it's a reaction to somebody else to what they said. Because you don't want to become like the person that you hurt. Why would I want to become somebody that hurt me to hurt them? It doesn't make any sense to me. But we know the analogy, hurt people hurt people. And so when we take responsibility on our part, this is what I said. And I, you know what? It was dumb. It was stupid. And I need to regain your trust again. And I'm so sorry for what I said. Because I need, you don't say that, I need a clear conscience. And I need to know that I tried to make direct amends as soon as I could. And so the next one I've noticed in, in, in this is that make amends when possible. See, to me, that there's times that we try to make a man say, hey, do you mind if we talk? No, you stupid, rotten idiot, you know, and all this stuff. You know they're not ready. And so sometimes when they say, no, you stupid, rotten something, you, then you go, you, well, you're stupid, you know, and start up again. Were you ready to make amends? No. You weren't ready. You weren't ready to make amends. 
And so sometimes they will reject you, and they're not ready to make amends right now because their hurt is so raw. And so this is where step nine is so wise, where it says, wherever possible. Sometimes a person is just not ready. They're just not ready to make amends. And you need the maturity and the wisdom to realize, you know what, not now, maybe later, maybe in a few months down the line, I'll venture in this. But maybe, you know what, I'm going to pray about it. Work it, work it through, but I can't force this to happen. And so this is where I've noticed when I have tried to make amends with somebody, and they said, well, don't worry about it. It was nothing. It's nothing. It's no big deal. It was. It was a big deal. It is a big deal. When they say, don't worry about it, they don't, they're uncomfortable with this talk. And so you have to treat it as a big deal. You have to value that person and have to go to them directly. This is where making amends is very important wherever possible. Have you ever stayed in a hotel that um, had a door between two rooms? And you, and you go into the room and you go, and the first thing what you do, you check that bolt lock, right? Because <laughs> I, I don't know who's on that other side, but I don't want some kid randomly walking in. So you lock it. Well, we know that on the other side of the room, there's another bolt lock, right? And so the thing is, in this analogy... You may not get the door open, but just be sure your lock is unlocked. They may have the bolt locked, but you can't be knocking on the door and go, get over it, come on, get over it, don't be. <laughs> I heard this before. Hey, why don't you mature up and talk to me? Oh, that's going to work just dynamite here, you know. That doesn't work. And so you just, all you have to do is keep the door open. And whenever they're ready, if they're ready, they will open it up. This is where the Apostle Paul was so smart when he said this, and it's recorded in Romans 12, 18. If it's possible so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with others. This guy knew he couldn't live at peace with everybody, but he knew on my part, I'm doing my part, to live at peace with somebody else. And so be sure that when they're ready to open the lock, that you're humbly ready to do this. And wisdom the next one is wisdom on what not to say. This is important because there's many times in the 20 years that I've been here, part of this church that I've had couples that come into my office that said, that scumbag had an affair. And fix it, Kevin. And I always joke, like, I don't, I don't watch cable TV because I got enough drama in my office that, that I can see it live. You know, I don't need to see this. But sometimes sharing too much stuff when you're not reconciled, when you, you haven't made amends yet. And you've got to have the wisdom on what to say and what not to say. You can be truthful, but you don't have to be open with everything. And so when, when I see this, was she good enough? Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you see them? Where were you on a Thursday? Where were you on a Tuesday? And they felt, okay, I'm going to be honest. And you're just going, oh, great, this is going to make it worse. Because that openness before the amends, and it's going to be used against you. And so you've got to be very careful about how, how much to say. And I've seen this, too, that we are a shame-based culture, and we're a guilt-based culture. A lot of us struggle with shame and guilt. Shame is given to us. We don't, as a child, we don't automatically feel shame. You have to understand, as a child, child, I'm seeing my God kids when they're, 
when they're running around, I go, put your clothes on. You know, what are you running around naked for? There's no shame. I'm not saying, hey, look, if you don't struggle with shame, let's walk around naked. No one needs to see that. But I'm just saying that that is something that's learned. I believe shame and guilt are just as bad as porn. Because what happens, we devalue people by doing this. This is why TMZ, this is why all these shows about shaming and guilt and gossip is so powerful now. Because this is our culture. And we've got to be very careful on how we do this. And that's why we need to seek wisdom. There's sometimes that I've learned this, that when there's couples and stuff like this, there's landmines. Have you ever stepped on a landmine that you didn't see, trying to reconcile, trying to make amends? And you go, ooh, they just exploded. I didn't see that. That's why it's good to bring a third party, which I call the bomb squad. That it's time to deal with these landmines first before we make amends. That's why you need to prayerfully be open to make amends. Richard Rohr says this, truth is not just what happened, but also what you and any party has a right to know. You can handle the responsibility. And so what happens, we can feed in the prejudice. And let me show you, uh, let me give you some practical step. I asked Eddie and his wife to come forward at this time. And I want to show you something about making amends with a couple if you're dating or, or something. And I asked them if they could come and give me an example. And this is something that Jennifer and I learned when we were first uh, married. We did learn this in premarital counseling. And um, this is when there's tension within a relationship going on and you need to make amends. This works 100%. And so what I did here, I, I always tell a couple, move closer, move closer, as close as you can get. And hold hands. This is very uncomfortable for him. Because if you notice, the two legs are between her legs. It's instant vulnerability for a man. And so it's defensive. This is what I call when you're holding hands, uh, where they're emotional readers. Because what happens, I tell a couple, and what we learn is that you share your hurts. And the other person has to remain having eye contact. There's no this, there's no rolling eye, there's no dominant factor where you're trying to stand above, there's none of this talking, but an intimate talk. And so when they talk like this, the other person has to say, this is what I heard. And when you can feel the hand pulling away like this, they start, they're getting defensive emotionally. Because you know when making amends, what happens here is you want to get a heart read, and you can get the heart read by holding hands. And I've seen many times when I'm doing something like this, it works powerfully. Because if you're in a major argument as a couple, touch is important to make amends. And so when you go to say, hey, we need to talk, let's sit in the chairs. I ain't sitting in the chair. They're not ready. You see what I mean? You're going to waste your time. Until you sit in the chair. And then when I've done this premarital counseling and they come in, for a tune-up, because they hate each other. <laughs> I go, when's the last time you did the chairs? With you? And so this is effective with Jennifer and I when it comes to this kind of thing. So I want to encourage you, if you need to make amends, thank you so much, uh, to make amends. As a dating couple or a couple, the chair thing is important. It's showing that the in intimacy is going on. 
So if you look on the screen, our honesty is placed in the wrong hands. Just because of fuel for gossip, which we call TMI if you're really into the text messaging, too much information, can be harmful even to ourselves. Anything beyond giving an account to what you did to bring harm, what the other party has a right to know in order to amends to be made, and what they can handle responsibly and safely does not need to be shared. Therefore, it's wise to use discretion. So here's the three wisdom things that I'm learning. How to make direct amends is very wise. Two, how to know when you're making amends is possible. And three, what to say and what not to say. Having wisdom, getting out of sticky positions, whether somebody agrees with you politically or not, that we definitely need God's wisdom. So let me show you this. In the book of James, which is Jesus' stepbrother, he says this about wisdom, which is incredible, because we go, oh, great, God, you gave Solomon some wisdom, and I need wisdom. But James says this in chapter 1. He says, if anyone is lacking wisdom, ask God, who can give it to all generously, ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. We as a society right now, in order to have peace, we need to have wisdom as a tool to achieve peace. We need a spirit of humility. We need a spirit to say, you know what, we're not against each other. We're on the same team. It's called life. And so when we begin to pray together, when we begin to lift one another up, when we truly love in a way that Christ loves us, not in the way that the society has taught us, I love you, but the way you make me feel. But we truly want the best for our spouse, even at our cost. That we truly want trust in the relationship. That we really want a working environment. To, it needs to start with me. When I went to church, I always said this at the beginning. The reason I became a pastor is because I did not have a pastor that I could that I enjoyed, a church that I would feel comfortable with. So I, I learned this. If I can't find the example, then I need to become it. And so therefore, you look in the relationships and all the fighting and all the stuff and all the tearing, just say, you know what? I don't get it. I don't see a good example within the religious institutions that we see in our society because they're so focused on political agendas that it needs to start with me. And I need to live at peace. And where it starts, it starts with the main people that I've influenced. My marriage, my children, your children are so cute. You know, when Aaron was up here and didn't say anything, his sister was making fun of him through the whole singing. That's why he was standing still. Roshib, last year Aaron, uh, Aaron, last year Jesse had to hold him, right? Because he didn't want to go up and he was ticked. But when he was totally enjoying it. Look at the kids that we influence. And Pastor Ruben's kid. What's his Kyle? This Kai, sorry. I should know this because I've known Ruben long. I've known Ruben since he was in eight, uh, 10th grade. I've known Esther since she was in junior high. They were calm kids. I don't know where this one came from. <laughs> this one's height. <laughs> And he's the friendliest kid. But these are our influence as a church. 
these children. And that's why I was ecstatic when you were clapping and all this stuff, that we can celebrate people's lives. Cindy, 82 years, 82 years, 82 days celebrating sobriety today. That was Cindy. And so this is where we celebrate. This is where we celebrate with our children and stuff like that, that all of a sudden we can see restoration in people's lives, and that it starts with us. May God bless you, and may God bless us. Let's stand up and do a prayer. The person that's doing the pastoral prayer, if you can come forward. Oh, Ruben, I love you kids. <laughs> Father, we thank you. We just pray that you anoint in a way that you've never anointed that your Holy Spirit will work in us in a way that is, just gives us incredible peace. We just thank you, Lord, for the miracles that you're going to do in our lives, that we can bring peace within the marriage, peace within the, our, our, our work environment, and peace in our community and within our church. We thank you in Jesus' name.